Hi, everyone. So obviously, it's a pretty unusual and uncertain time in our lives right now. With the coronavirus and the unprecedented limits on our lives that have been put in place in order to slow its spread, life has felt rather like a, a movie. Uh, it's been pretty surreal. I think we've all felt the past while. And it's easy to feel scared or not know how scared we should be. Where I am, in Germany, the Chancellor Angela Merkel called it the greatest challenge facing the country since World War II. There's no question that there's been a lot of loss and suffering because of the virus. But I, for one, am confident that we'll pull through eventually. And I also don't think that we should forget the fact that this whole situation has shown how creative and flexible we all can be in a time of crisis. And I have found that to both be very inspiring and also reassuring. Things from how quickly everyone was willing to do what was needed and accept limits on our social lives to the fact that all kinds of things that seemed impossible before suddenly are being seriously considered and starting to make a lot of sense to people in power, like a universal basic income. And just because we're dealing with one fast-moving crisis doesn't mean that we shouldn't also take this moment to think creatively on how we can solve another, much slower-moving challenge, especially since this current situation shows the kinds of effort, resources, and money we're willing to spend when an existential crisis is facing us. Now, my guest today, Solomon Goldstein-Rose, is someone who has thought a lot about solving that slower-moving crisis of ours, climate change. Solomon has been a climate activist since the age of 11, but he first came to wider public attention when he was elected at the age of 22 to the Massachusetts State Legislature, becoming the youngest representative there in the process. After just one term in 2018, Solomon decided to not contest his seat in the legislature in order to devote himself more fully to climate change at the national and international levels. Having studied both public policy and engineering, one thing that concerns Solomon is that virtually all policy proposals aimed at addressing climate change don't do so from the vantage point of achieving an overall systemic solution to climate change, but instead focus on piecemeal elements of the problem. It's reducing car emissions here, electricity emissions there, but with little understanding for how these initiatives may fit in with the overall picture. But in order to solve climate change, Solomon points out that we need not just to radically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but to eliminate them completely and ultimately achieve net negative emissions by 2050, which would mean that we're actually taking out some of the added CO2 we've pumped into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. How exactly we can achieve such an ambitious but physically necessary goal is the subject of Solomon's new book, The 100% Solution. In it, Solomon outlines the engineering, technological, and economic transformations that need to take place in order to fully reach a 100% solution and do so in the next 30 years. Solomon Goldstein-Rose lives in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where I reached him by Skype on March 11th. Well, Solomon, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you for having me. Now, there, there are so many different books and articles about climate change being published all the time. I was curious why you wanted to write this particular book at this particular time. The 100% Solution book started with a project of me basically trying to wrap my own mind around where emissions really came from. I had been in the Massachusetts legislature, um, got elected right out of college trying to focus on climate change and did some clean energy policy there and then realized that wasn't going to be the place that I could have the biggest impact. And so I was trying to figure out what should I do? What do we need people to focus on more? And I'm a, a systems thinker, comprehensive thinker. And so I tried to track down where all the emissions come from globally and what what systems needed to be physically changed or modified to go from having emissions to not having emissions. And in that process, I came upon some of these big ideas or or facts that people don't tend to talk about a lot, like two-thirds of emissions come from developing countries. Well, policy mandates are never going to solve that problem because they don't have the economic means to adopt technologies that are more expensive right now. And so that's a different mindset. We need to be making all of these technologies cheap enough to spread in developing countries. 
Um, that's one of the core pieces of my framework. And there were several other things that that added up to a framework that it ties together a lot of the existing knowledge and scholarship that's currently siloed. It's not that I have brand new research here. Uh, there's some new analyses that are different than what other people come to, but mostly it's tying everything together in a comprehensive way and doing that logical analysis of, okay, what what can we do that will add up, add up to a total solution, a hundred percent solution to climate change by 2050. So deciding to turn it into a book was simply to share it with people, have something to point people to as a background for a conversation. So is it true then that it sounds like you were already involved with climate change for a long time before writing this book, but still didn't really necessarily understand a lot of the specific facets of it before this all came together? Yeah, I've been a climate activist since age 11 and started working on very local projects, one petition to Congress and a lot of things in my school district. And then I went off to college and I studied engineering and did an internship in the White House Council on Environmental Quality and decided, okay, I'm going in the political direction. I've always been focused on what can I do to help solve climate change. That's how I've made most major life decisions. And and yet, I was no, I noticed when I was state rep that I and many others uh, in the activist community around me were thinking about, okay, what can we do in whatever situation we're in right now? Um, and, and what can we do to do our part, make a contribution that seems possible, politically viable right now? And you, you realize with this massive issue that has a deadline, unlike many other issues, that you can't really solve it by everyone doing their part and things just, you know, hoping things just add up. And so when I decided to shift from state rep work to full-time national and global focused climate change work, I decided I needed to go this level deeper and more globally and think not what can Massachusetts do to help things along and make a contribution, but what needs to happen in total, and then go from there, think sort of backwards to what can each entity do that would really be helpful and really fit in with a path that actually adds up by 2050. So to make it really simple, I mean, what are we actually talking about, or what are you actually talking about when you talk about a 100% solution to climate change? So scientists tell us we need to get to net negative global emissions by around 2050. Um, this means eliminating all emissions and removing CO2 from the atmosphere so that we're starting to draw down the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and eventually we'll get back to the historic levels of CO2 and the historic temperatures decades and decades from now. But that turning point of when we stop increasing the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and start decreasing the amount instead that's when the impacts, perhaps delayed a few decades as the temperature adjusts, the impacts of climate change start getting better rather than worse. That's the turning point that, that if you can pinpoint one point and say that's solving climate change, that's it. That's solving climate change. And doing that by 2050 means that we expect the maximum impacts to be something we can adapt to. If we do that by 2100, in the intervening time, there'll be so much warming and so many irreversible changes to ecosystems and impacts from sea level rise that we won't be able to go back to the same world that we had some decades ago, some decades after that point. If we do it by 2050, we can. And a bunch of species may go extinct, but not most of them. And we will lose a lot of coral reefs, but eventually they can come back and humans will be able to readily adapt. And that's what we're talking about when we say solving climate change. Um, it's not that we can avoid any impacts because we're already starting to see impacts and they're going to get worse, even if we totally solve the problem, but making it manageable and getting from where we are now with emissions increasing every year to 2050, having net negative emissions globally means a rapid transition of all of the systems, the pieces of equipment that burn fossil fuels and emit CO2 or that release methane from pipelines or from agriculture and 
changing all of those physical systems to things that do not emit greenhouse gases. That's basically the, the physical project, and it is an engineering challenge. And some of those technologies that need to be used to not emit greenhouse gases don't exist yet or exist in a lab stage or are commercialized at a really small scale but are too expensive. In fact, most clean technologies have never been really scaled up. And so the, the challenge of achieving a 100% solution means getting from here where we're, we're on a track that's still increasing emissions and leading towards irreversible climate changes to a track that gets all the way to net negative emissions by switching all the necessary infrastructure by 2050. And you can't leave any country out. You can't leave any source of emissions out. That's what 100% is about because even if you eliminate 90% of emissions, you're still adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. You're still actually making the problem worse every year. Even if you've eliminated most emissions, you only are making the problem better every year once you have net negative emissions. Can you talk about just how kind of complicated that is? Because we're we're talking about things from a bunch of different areas of, of human life. You know, we're talking about the energy system. We're talking about transportation. We're talking about heating. We're talking about how people cook their food. Could you just talk about uh, how many different facets are involved with getting to 100%? Yeah. So there are a lot of different parts of this. And I look at the transition through an engineering lens. Physically, there are pieces of equipment right now that emit greenhouse gases. We need to replace those with new systems that don't emit greenhouse gases. And those come in a lot of different slices of the emissions pie, if you will. The biggest one that we tend to think about is electricity generation. Uh, we have power plants, coal and, and methane, which we call natural gas, and sometimes oil. And that is about a quarter of global emissions. And then there's personal energy use, heating our homes or in our commercial buildings, driving cars, driving trucks and other things like that. And all of that together is still less than half of emissions, including electricity generation. There are other things like flying airplanes is a little slice, shipping a little slice, um, but then industrial processes like manufacturing steel, manufacturing cement. And some of these processes are, burn fossil fuels, but also have direct emissions. For instance, when you heat limestone in a cement kiln to turn it into lime, um, it emits CO2, not from burning fossil fuel, which you are also doing, uh, but just from the chemical reaction that you're achieving to make cement. And so someone needs to design a new cement production process that uses different materials or somehow captures the CO2 or uses a different chemical pathway so that it produces some other byproduct. And people are working on that, but that's not there yet. Um, and then there is agriculture, which is really a, a large slice, but comes in, in several different forms of emissions. The biggest is deforestation. Um, land is cleared. The most relevant is tropical rainforest, which is, stores huge amounts of carbon. And it's cleared for livestock grazing, largely, and, and some for soy production and for palm oil production. And reducing that requires not new technological systems, but different agricultural practices and policies that simply enforced against deforestation. Um, and then the livestock themselves, you know, cattle belch methane, um, the, the waste from plants and animals release greenhouse gases. The soil itself releases uh, nitrous oxide when you spread fertilizer on it. Um, and some of that becomes nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas hundreds of times more powerful than CO2. So there are all of these little things. It's complex. And Often we think in an ideological direction. Oh, climate change is important. We need to do something about it. We need to move in the direction of fewer emissions. And I'm suggesting we need to revise that mindset a bit and not think about moving in a direction, but getting to the net negative emissions world. And some of the strategies that can start us there, that 10% solutions, are not necessarily the same ones that can get us all the way there. You, you mentioned in the book, yeah, these 10% solutions. So what, what do you exactly mean by a 10% solution? Yeah. One key thing to keep in mind is that not all the solutions that can start to reduce emissions can finish reducing emissions. For instance, a, a lot of uh, political rhetoric talks about efficiency 
measures of various kinds, um, making cars required to be more efficient or having um, appliance standards to make things more efficient or having policies that encourage people to change their behavior in some way, which as a whole society makes things more efficient. Those are good policies and they tend to make things cheaper, which is good, but in themselves, they can only ever reduce emissions within this system that's causing emissions. They can never eliminate emissions. Efficiency can never get, by definition, to 100%. To get all the way to eliminating emissions, you need to change the system to one that doesn't emit greenhouse gases. Um, we have a graphic in the book that I love where we have a bunch of cars you know, fueling with gasoline and driving and emitting CO2, and then you can have some efficiency policy, doesn't matter what it is, that reduces the number of cars on the road, and you have less CO2 going up. But you're still adding CO2. This isn't making the problem better. This is making the problem worse a little less fast. And then the, the third panel, we have a bunch of cars, actually the original number, you can have as many as you want now, because they're electric and they're running on in this graphic wind power. And so they're not emitting CO2. So changing those systems physically, rather than making things more efficient within existing systems that by definition emit greenhouse gases needs to be the political priority now. You say that the sentiment among, you know, many environmentalists that we have all the technology we need, now we just need the will, uh, isn't quite right in your view. Can you tell me why? Yeah. So there's this line that goes around, we have all the technology we need, we just need political will. And it's partly true. We have technology, we can start reducing emissions, emphasis on start. And again, this goes back to that, the 10% versus 100% solutions this line is mired in the thinking of let's start moving in this ideological direction rather than let's have a strategy that we know can actually add up by 2050 and get all the way there. Um, it, people use this line in different ways. Some people use it to mean we don't need to wait around for revolutionary new technologies to simply come along. And that is true. In fact, if we just wait around for revolutionary technologies to simply come along, we're going to be waiting for far too long. That's not going to happen by 2050. Uh, but some of the biggest technological developments have happened when governments have intervened and funded research and coordinated research. And there are a lot of great examples of this in the US from the internet to the Human Genome Project to going back farther, the Apollo program, commercialization of radar, GPS. So we we need to create those technological improvements. And the key thing is we have a lot of technology where right now wealthy countries could reduce most of their emissions. There are some things that we would really need to develop new technologies still, but we know roughly what those are and we know we could develop those technologies if we really set our minds to it. But all of this is too expensive for developing countries to adopt. So going back to the point from much earlier about two thirds of emissions come from developing countries, we don't have all the technology we need affordable enough to actually spread worldwide. And a plan that says, oh, we're going to decarbonize ourselves, you know, as Europe, as the US, industrialized countries, and then we're going to bully China and India into doing the same. Well, they can't do the same the way that we can. And no amount of political will in India, where, by the way, there is political will, because they're going to be massively impacted by climate change. And also they've got massive problems with direct air pollution, smog and everything in their cities right now. So if they could afford to adopt clean technologies, you bet they would. And they are as well as coal because they need as much energy as they can. Um, so to, to make it possible for countries like India to decarbonize, you have to make all the clean systems cheap enough and, and ideally cheaper than the equivalent fossil fuel systems. And that's where we don't, we're not there at all. Almost no clean systems are definitively cheaper than their fossil fuel equivalents. And that's the project that we need to be undertaking as industrialized countries. We can scale up all of these technologies, whether it's simply manufacturing a lot more of them really quickly to bring the, the cost down or doing some R&D in some cases and then bringing it into manufacturing. We can make out all of these pieces of equipment cheap enough to then spread really fast in developing countries. Well, what about, uh, you know, you, you hear often in the news that uh, solar is now as cheap or wind is now as cheap as coal. So have we not already reached that mm -hmm. point in some, some sectors? 
There are some sectors where the clean system is actually cheaper. The the best example is in agriculture, soil management practices that are sustainable and uh, reduce emissions and actually store CO2 in the soil can be cheaper and more profitable for farmers, but it requires a big change. And, and so it's that upfront change and risk uh, or perceived risk that you need to overcome. For electricity generation, Solar and wind, in depending where you are and how it's manufactured and what you're comparing it to, can be cheaper than methane or coal power plants when they're producing. And this is the key difference that gets left out. If you want to add a certain amount of generation to the grid and you don't care when that generation happens, then solar can be the cheapest way to do that. But if you want to have an entire grid system that is reliable, that is going to produce power when it's needed for the society, um, people turn to coal, and, or in the US, methane, in India, coal. And that's still being expanded rapidly because solar and wind produce when the sun is shining, when the wind is blowing. And they in themselves, yes, it can be very cheap, but the storage or other integrated systems to balance that intermittency are not cheap uh, or are not developed yet. As we integrate more systems, have more electric cars that can charge at various times or have synthesized fuels, which is something that often gets left out of conversation, but we're going to need to create some carbon neutral fuels and carbon free fuels like hydrogen to drop in some places we can't electrify. Synthesizing those fuels with clean electricity can become a way of using excess solar and wind and reducing the need for storage. So there are a lot of things that will become easier as we progress in this transition. But no, right now, solar and wind as a whole on a grid system tend to come with more costs than a system that's heavier in coal and natural gas. And of course, we're talking about right now, grid systems tend to be only, you know, one to 20% renewable. So the the question is, how do we add a lot of solar and wind quickly? And, and that can be quite affordable and even profitable in the current systems. But then how do we get the coal and methane off the grid? And what are we going to replace that with in terms of reliable baseload power, whether that's storage, since those fuels, nuclear or, or fossil fuels with carbon capture? Yeah, you, you talk about nuclear quite a bit um, in the book, and you come out kind of quite in favor of it, which, you know, would go at odds with a lot of other people within the, the climate movement. Can you talk about why why your position on nuclear is quite positive? Yeah, part of it is what I just said, that solar and wind can be very cheap when they're producing, but the sun doesn't shine at night. So you need some sort of backup and batteries are not there. And I've done a lot of work trying to find ways that political entities can help advance battery technologies this is one of the big things I did in the Massachusetts legislature. And so I've looked into batteries enough to conclude they're probably not going to, in the very near future, become so cheap that you can have a grid that's just solar and wind with traditional batteries year round. Uh, in some areas where you're just talking about overnight storage and there's no seasonal variation, that might be viable. But but where I live in Massachusetts, in, in winter, we get way less sun to power the solar panels than in summer. And those seasonal variations, no battery is that long term. Um, and so one, we can turn to nuclear to fill in some of these gaps where solar and wind might be able to be a third of the grid. They might be able to be two thirds of the grid, but they're not going to be able to be 100% in themselves. And so for 10 to 50% or depending on who you ask, um, having something reliable and carbon-free like nuclear makes a lot of sense. Um, that could be other technologies. You could build a lot of long-distance transmission. You could build uh, fossil fuels with carbon capture. You could build some really expensive storage. In almost every case, the, if you don't include any nuclear, it's probably going to be much more expensive to get all the way to 100% clean grid. The other reason that I'm really into the idea of promoting advanced nuclear reactors is that nuclear is such a concentrated form of energy. And any of the problems that are associated with energy sources, be that 
the land area they take up, the waste that they produce, the materials that are required to manufacture them. Basically, the pro those problems with nuclear are going to be hundreds to thousands of times smaller than those problems with solar, with wind, with coal, with methane. The differences comparing nuclear with fossil fuels are especially stark. You know, takes up the same to less land area for a power plant, and you don't need the massive coal mines and environmental destruction that causes. And then the waste is is hundreds of times less. But it's also less than the waste from solar panels, simply because you need to manufacture more solar panels and then scrap them after the end of their lifetime because solar is a much more diffuse resource. And so this concentrated form of power is really a, a benefit in the transition that we need to make in 30 years to scale up clean generation very quickly. And the idea that we would not even consider using one of the technologies that could help us get there seems silly. Um, you know, I, I think some people are hesitant about nuclear. I'm hesitant about fossil fuel use with carbon capture, but I'm willing to support it if that's how we can most quickly get the CO2 emissions eliminated. Um, and I don't think we can take options off the table like that. Um, but, but nuclear will be exciting because it can scale up very, very fast. And one final facet of this is that a lot of people are thinking about decarbonizing our current grid and replacing the system we have now with a clean system. And that is ignoring several major factors that are going to happen between now and 2050. One, we're going to electrify things. So we don't need just our current grid. We need a larger grid to power all the new electrified processes because our total energy use right now is only our final energy use is 20% electric. Um, that's going to go to a much higher percent, you know, 60% or more electric by 2050. And then the rest of that, that's not direct electric final uses, needs to be carbon neutral fuels that we synthesize using clean electricity. So that increases the demand for electricity generation even more. And then the final thing is that between now and 2050, people in developing countries especially are going to be getting access to energy as is happening rapidly now. People, not, not population growth, just existing people getting new access or more reliable access to energy. And so the demand for energy is going to grow significantly. And we want that to happen. That's what's lifting people out of poverty. Um, right now it's happening with fossil fuels. We need that to happen with clean energy. And in fact, as I've said, to make clean energy spread fast enough, it needs to become cheaper than fossil fuels. And so then actually energy will be cheaper. More people will have access to it, which is really exciting. That uh, means we're going to be achieving a really fast economic development project here. But it means that the total electricity generation we need is even higher than a lot of models are projecting um, because a lot of models are based on really stringent efficiency policies that reduce the amount needed and, and don't promote that fast economic growth for developing countries. So if you think about this world in which we've actually solved climate change 100% by 2050, we're going to need something like five times as much electricity generation worldwide as we have today. And all of that, unlike today, needs to be clean. So getting from here to there means a massive building project. We need to build so much new clean generation. And that's why some things like advanced nuclear reactors that you can mass manufacture in shipyards or factories and you know roll these out, standardized designs, hundreds per year, that could help us scale up really fast. Similarly, on the solar side, we need to be doing more research into perovskite and organic thin film solar that you can produce on roll-to-roll -roll processing machines. And this is similarly a, a way of mass manufacturing solar even more efficiently than we can mass manufacture it now. It's continuous production, um, much cheaper materials. You don't need the glass, the silicon. Um, and that could help solar again get to the, this massive scale of, of manufacturing per year. And both of those, I think, are key research and, and commercialization priorities to be pursuing because of the rate at which we need to be adding clean generation. What do you think is needed to, to get to this point where all these technologies that are either already existing, uh, but expensive, or really at the very early stages are actually cheaper than all the current systems out there? Mm -hmm. To get all of these systems to be cheap enough, you need some R&D. Some of these technologies, like cement production, there are existing technologies that 
a couple places have adopted that can reduce emissions, but nothing that totally eliminates these emissions. So you need some some research work on that. Some things like the advanced nuclear reactors, the research is done, the designs are there, but there hasn't been the support yet for bringing almost any of these to the demonstration phase where you get to scale and, and prove that it works in the real world and get people comfortable with it. Um, so you need that. For something like electric cars, it's there, the technology is all good to go, but think of the number of electric cars that we've manufactured ever in history versus the number of gas cars that we've manufactured ever in history. And you, you can be not that surprised that electric cars are still way more expensive upfront because they just haven't reached that, the, what you'd call nth of a kind rather than first of a kind or first few of a kind manufacturing scale. And so getting all of the pieces of equipment to the necessary costs means coordinating funding R&D for some things, um, coordinating funding demonstration projects for many things, and then bringing every piece of, of needed technology through the first stage of manufacturing. And you can do that with direct government procurement. Say, okay, the government of Germany is going to shift all of the cars it owns to electric. All the vehicles are going to be electric or you know, whether battery or hydrogen powered in five years. You've just created a great new market for the manufacturing of those electric vehicles, scaling that up. Um, same with heating. You can convert all the government buildings to electric air source heat pumps for heating buildings. And then you can go further and you can say, okay, every household, you have to convert to electric car or electric heating, whatever it is, and we're going to subsidize that. So it's a combination of public procurement, mandates, subsidies, uh, something like carbon pricing can help with all of that especially if it ramps up to a very high price pretty fast. Um, and, and convening different companies in different countries um, and cities and states to get everyone being as ambitious as possible. This amounts to a set of, of moonshot projects is how I tend to oversimplify it. Um, but everything from the basic R&D to full-scale commercialization some of it is policy, some of it is direct initiatives or government funding or government procurement, um, but all of it needs to be coordinated and analyzed from that comprehensive perspective, making sure we don't leave any technology out that needs to be commercialized, uh, making sure that we don't leave any country out and have solutions that work in every country. I mean, you say that you know such an effort would, would really cost hundreds of billions of dollars a, a year. Um, what are your, I guess, how optimistic are you that a country like the United States would, would put that type of money forward? Yeah. These projects are going to cost a lot upfront, but they're going to cost a lot less than if we tried to do this transition by simply deploying everything we've got right now and overbuilding solar and wind massively because we haven't developed better storage or cheaper solar or advanced nuclear. And it's going to cost a lot less than if we didn't do these projects and had to adapt to more extreme impacts of climate change. So the first thing is this is a good investment. Um, it's also a good investment just literally in itself because we're going to be creating jobs. We're going to be growing new manufacturing industries. We're going to be lowering people's energy costs because by definition for things to scale up, fast enough globally, we have to make energy cheaper. So that's all really exciting. And yes, I think that there is a good chance that countries like the US and others will invest in that. And states and cities, large ones anyway, can play a role. The The exact amount, one is uncertain, but the, I have this order of magnitude of a few hundred billion dollars per year. That is a lot, even for the US federal budget but it's totally manageable. The US federal budget fluctuates by hundreds of billions of dollars per year without any particular question or consequences sometimes. So that's reasonable. The key political thing is that it needs to be a priority. If people are trying to solve climate change as a side project while they're doing five other things that they care about more, they're not going to emphasize it enough. They're not going to spend the political capital that's needed to sell people on the scale of the projects that are needed. And so the main 
political shift that we need is for these projects to solve climate change, which even if you don't believe in climate change should be very exciting because of the economic benefits, for these to become the national priority. And this is where you can compare it to like a World War II mentality, not going to war, but the manufacturing side of what we did in World War II. And the US especially ramped up whole industries of manufacturing that barely existed to supply the allies with airplanes and all, you know, commercialized radar and all of these new technologies or just scaled up technologies that were manufactured privately, but with heavy coordination with government. And everyone felt the sense of national purpose together and and priority because, of course, it was war. Achieving that sort of shared sense of purpose and, and excitement around these unifying national projects and, and making it a priority without it being a war is the political challenge. That's where we need to communicate really effectively to make people comfortable with the scale. Like this is going to be an investment, a big one, and it's going to pay off because one, it will actually solve the problem, unlike plans that don't add up, which you might be more wary of investing in something if it's not even gonna solve the problem. This is gonna solve the problem because we can get from here to there. And it's gonna lower your energy costs. So. It's not going to make your lifestyle more limited or something. It's not a sacrifice. It's a, a big investment that is going to have big economic benefits and solve the problem. So making people comfortable in that way and making sure that political leaders know the scale of the problem and the, the physical scope of the transition that needs to happen so that they understand that this is not some overly ambitious, massive, massive, massive thing. This is what needs to happen. This, this massive level is the minimum of steps that need to happen to actually solve climate change. And instilling an understanding among political leaders of what physically has to be achieved will make it more likely that they achieve it. Right. I mean, you point out quite rightly that uh, the minimum solution is a 100% solution because otherwise the overall amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will continue going up, which will mean the effects get worse. Even if we almost you know, just got so close to solving it, it's still going to worsen. Yeah, exactly. One thing that you just mentioned is that, you know, it shouldn't require changes in your lifestyle or negatively impact your lifestyle, which, you know, again, is something that a lot of people who care about climate change would disagree with. So many would say that, well, we just take too many resources from the earth. Uh, The idea that every one of us in the world could live like a rich European isn't practical. Why aren't you of the same opinion? Yeah, so... The idea that people in Europe and the US consume too much in in the economy is fine. That's a different issue. Um, And it's not as relevant as people think to solving climate change because they're forgetting two-thirds of emissions come from developing countries. In developing countries, lifestyles are modest. People are just getting access to energy. You can have all of the intellectual debates you want about how people should be living eventually. But I think everyone can agree that people who are just getting reliable access to electricity so they can have safe lighting in their home so that students can have an education where they can study at night, where people can get around and get to school and have commerce are pretty basic things that we can support. That's what's driving the increase in emissions right now. That basic level of energy use growing worldwide. And so to say that we can change lifestyles to solve the problem is ignoring two-thirds of emissions coming from developing countries. The idea of changing lifestyles in industrialized countries to start solving the problem is fine, but that's stuck in the mentality of starting to reduce emissions. If we consume less, then emissions will go down a little bit. That's true, but emissions going down a little bit isn't our goal. Emissions going down all the way is our goal. And us consuming more or less doesn't actually affect how viable that is. And so if we are going to solve the problem in developing countries, we need to make clean energy cheaper than fossil energy is now, basically. And so energy will be cheaper, so more people will have access to it. That will be really great for economic development in developing countries. That will also mean that, by and large, energy will be cheaper in industrialized countries. And so people who are worried about this the idea that, that yeah, we're going to have to sacrifice and, oh, you can't fly anymore. You have to 
turn your thermostat way down winter or whatever. Um, I, I want to reassure those people because right now they're standing in the way of bold climate action because they're worried about this. Um, we have to reassure them that actually by definition, this these projects are going to make energy cheaper. And so you're not going to have to turn your thermostat down. You can heat your home the same amount as you always have. It just has to be different equipment doing it. You're not going to have an oil furnace. You're going to have an air source heat pump. It's going to run on electricity and your house will be all electric eventually. And your lifestyle will be pretty much the same, but it will be without emissions. Um, for some people, obviously, you know, if you are a fossil fuel worker, your lifestyle is going to change a lot because that job isn't going to exist. And either you're going to be retrained for a new job or you're going to be given some guaranteed retirement pension from the government to make this transition work. If you are someone that lives on the coast, obviously, your lifestyle is going to be very different if we solve the problem or not. But for most people, the moderate voters who we think of as the average Americans, or I think it's probably similar in Europe, who are hesitant about bold government action to solve climate change, I, I think a lot of that wariness comes from the rhetoric that implies that the solution is going to be we consume less, we limit our activities. And in fact, the solution comes from changing systems, not lifestyles. Right. And, and you point out innovation uh, doesn't have a, a bad name or isn't as worrisome to someone on the, the right wing side of politics compared to yeah. li limiting your lifestyle. Yeah, definitely. It depends what you, you know, innovation is an ill-defined term. I use it in certain ways in the book. And, and I know that when you talk about those things, people of all across politics tend to get excited. Um, but some people also do, again, use innovation to mean let's just wait around for technologies to come, which won't work. Or people on the climate activist side think innovation means let's do basic R&D, um, when in fact, innovation needs to include that manufacturing scale up through policy and other means to reduce the cost. For me, innovation is anything that reduces the cost of these commercial products. You you also talk about the the valley of death I, th I think it's called uh, that happens in um, yeah you know the development of of technologies and we did some work on this podcast about carbon capture and I mean it might be coming out of the other end now but that was definitely the biggest problem for a lot of years is that you know they had that early university funding maybe to show that it was theoretically possible but then there was no market and no way to to scale up could you talk about getting over that in general for all of these kind of technologies. Yeah. So the Valley of Death is this gap between there's a lot of government or other academic funding for early stage basic science research. And then there's venture capital funding for proven technologies, things with maybe business risk, but no technical risk. And in between where you're proving that there's no technical risk, there's very little funding. A part of this is the mindset of academia, where publishing papers is the thing that professors are rewarded for and are striving for and creating new scientific knowledge or it's something that, that no one has done before that's totally unique versus commercializing something or you know, something that might not be unique but that gets a technology that little bump from existing to being commercializable that's not prioritized or glorified in academia much um, and it's not funded as much by the government so this is where the R&D side of Moonshot Projects needs to focus, creating new government funding programs for that, that valley of death and taking sound ideas from the lab stage, testing them out in you know, larger lab tests, small field tests, all the way through full-scale demonstration power plants or factories or whatever they are, and proving which ones work. And you know that a lot of them are not going to work. That's fine. The, the, the point is to bring things through a testing phase where you can say, okay, this works, this doesn't, and then you know, and then you have the, the more certain levels of technical risk where you can take things into manufacturing at full scale and commercialization and deployment where it has been proven that this works physically and the question is just, does it work as a business model? And even then, we should have various you know, tax credits or other incentives for the private capital to come in and scale those things up uh, because we want all of this to go very fast. Now, as you mentioned at, uh, at the beginning of the interview, you know, you were elected as the 
I think, youngest ever state senator of Massachusetts. You were only 22 years old and right out of college. What did that... Youngest when I was there. Oh, youngest when you were there. Okay. Um, What did that experience teach you in general, or did it teach you anything about, you know, getting policies that that are stuck within partisanship, at least right now, passed? So, yeah, being a Massachusetts legislator was a a very educational experience. Um, It was not representative exactly of U.S. national politics, because Massachusetts is not a very partisan state. It's There's an overwhelming Democratic supermajority, and the ideological differences between the many Democrats and the Republicans that there are, are often dwarfed by the ideological differences across the spectrum of Democrats. So it's it's not um, polarized in that way. It has a different problem, which is that there is not a process for getting big ideas on the agenda in the legislature, in part because Massachusetts is sort of the best of U.S. states on a lot of things. We tend to be ranked the best for education, for veterans benefits, for energy efficiency, for healthcare, And so people get complacent and feel like, oh, you know, compared to the other states, we're so good and we don't need to do more. And rather than compared to where we actually need to be, which we're not by any means. And so there is not a a culture of bold, proactive action, and, and there hasn't been for a while. And so that's where that's sort of what I ran up against and realized and decided not to run for re-election after one term because there wasn't this there wasn't a process literally for an individual rep to get something big on the agenda. Um, But along the way, the individual conversations that I had about bills that I was introducing and other people were, were really useful in seeing what messaging worked with different people to get folks excited about. For instance, um, I had this energy jobs bill, uh, that was the, the title, and it was a somewhat comprehensive bill tying together many different pieces in a large vision of decarbonizing Massachusetts, but also growing industry and lowering people's costs and everything. And when you tie everything together in that way, it got more people interested. The the different, you know, the creativity of it breaks people out of their different modes of existing you know, mindsets. And the fact that you have this vision of here's the world we're gonna achieve, sell people on that. And then like that necessarily includes this, this, and this. So then something like carbon pricing, which pitched as a standalone policy, seems really bold and controversial to some people, even though it shouldn't be, as part of a vision like that seems obvious. Like, oh, of course, you know, that's going to be one part tied in with these other parts. And so that can break through some of this. I think it's similar with, with partisan gridlock, having something that ties together more of a vision that actually gets all the way there. It's not just that we need things to add up physically to solve climate change. It's we need plans that add up by 2050 to convince people to pass them because people want to know that the plan is actually going to work if they're going to go out on a limb and support it. And and what about the role of just average people who are concerned about climate change and all of this? Because, you know, in the book, it's clear that in your view, so much of it depends on the engineering side mixed with policy. But what about just the rest of us who uh, aren't in government or aren't engineers? The cool thing about democracy is that we are all in government. And it is going to be government that solves climate change. There's no way to get the amount of funding needed to do these moonshot projects without at least some set of major governments, hopefully including the U.S. federal government, to take real leadership. And all of us as individuals have power over that. We can communicate about climate change effectively. So using social media networks or conversations that we have with our friends or family or colleagues, or if we're active in an organizing group, whether or not it's a climate activist group, if it's any group, um, using these conversations to get people to understand what does solving climate change actually look like? That we need these moonshot projects, we need to make technologies cheaper to spread in developing countries. You know, we're changing systems, not lifestyles, and getting people comfortable with that. Everyone messaging more effectively would go a long way to the people who are currently wary of bold action becoming comfortable with it. And then People who want to be more active, of course, can become activists, can, you know, join the Sunrise Movement or lobby your legislators to 
get them to speak up more effectively and more often on what we should be doing. And there will are certain moments, especially you know when we have campaigns, that's a moment to go to candidates and have their attention and get them thinking about issues. And then when we have new governments, which I very much hope in the US we will next year, um, we have a, a moment to define a new agenda and to say, this needs to be a top priority. We need not only to pass a climate bill, but to have a whole larger project that actually adds up and we need you to understand what that is. So advocating with obviously national government entities, but also local or state entities and companies. And this is where I, th I think an underused activist tactic is pressuring companies to do things. Some large companies could very easily scale up things like electric delivery vans or um, hydrogen fueling stations or could convert their buildings to electric heat. And companies are already making those commitments because it makes them look good. And in many cases, it actually pays off economically for them. And so stepping up the pressure to get large companies to make those kinds of commitments and follow through very quickly could be, again, a, a way to that in itself won't solve the whole problem, but that can play a big role and it can make it more likely that government at the national level um, entities can take more leadership. Yeah, and that seems to have been happening, at least uh, with the American political situation right now. For, uh, did you hear about uh, the Microsoft pledge uh, a couple months ago to be carbon negative by 2030? Yeah, Microsoft has, has in stages gotten more and more ambitious on this and is joined by, I think, I don't know, Apple has somewhat similar things. Google definitely has things along a similar line. Amazon has had more attention and pressure on it and is lagging a bit, but they are moving in that direction. So there's definitely room to push this farther. Well, yeah, thanks for the, the book. I think it's an impressively comprehensive look of, you know, what is a normally very segmented problem with so many different facets to it. And I think you did a, a great job at bringing it all together. So thanks for writing the book and thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much. That was climate activist and former Massachusetts state representative Solomon Goldstein Rose. His new book is called The 100% Solution. To find out more, you can head to his website, solomongr.com. Until next time, stay safe and speak soon.